1: Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole coming at you from an undisclosed location here in NYC. And uh, we'd tell you, but then we'd have to flashy thing you. And my name is Matthew Rushing, just one of the hosts here and with me, as she is every single week, C. Oh, Agent C. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I'm so sorry, because, I mean, (laughs) unlike me, you make this look good. Show love to the black suit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've got my
0: Ray-Bans on, and, uh, you know, my suit, and uh, my noisy cricket in my pocket,
1: and ready to talk about this thing. What about you, Agent M? Oh, I am ready to go. Uh, I can't believe that we're talking about something that is I... Saw that this was coming out on a special 4K edition steelbook for 25 years. It was making me feel very old. Uh, And so before we uh, dive into our subject, which is Men in Black, the original, we want to say thank you. So much for listening to us. We really appreciate it. I don't know if anybody knows this, but just right around the corner in October, we're going to be hitting 400 episodes officially. Uh, We have more than that because we've got some of the supplemental issues and everything in, in the feed that you'll see. But 400 official episodes of the 602 Club coming up, and we've got some great stuff coming up this year. And, of course, next year, there's so much that's going to be coming out. Christy, I feel like I don't know if there will be a, week that we're not at the theater, it feels like, uh, just because all the things are coming out next year um, that mm-hmm. have continued to get pushed back. Uh, so, uh, but before we get to all of that, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and whatever platform you're listening on, please just subscribe so you get the show as soon as it drops. We would really appreciate it, though, if uh, if you're, say, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we know we ask for this a lot, but uh, in fact, pretty much every show but you can really help us grow and continue to find more people by giving us a star rating or a written review on something like an Apple podcast or Spotify. This does help more people find the show. And you can also share us. Tell a friend about us. Share us on social media. So follow us at the 602 club on Twitter or on Instagram at the 602 club TFM. Uh, and then of course you can share the, the episodes uh, when they come out. If you would like more people to know about us, we'd really appreciate that. It helps get the word out in those places. You can also find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash FM. We've got the listeners only discussion group. You can join there called the Babel conference as well. And then we're online at Trek.fm where you can see every single show that we are doing here on the network uh and last but not least if you want to make sure that the 602 club could possibly last for another 400 episodes well you've got to go over patreon.com slash trek fm and see how you can be part of our team and support the network it costs a lot of money to put all of these shows out each and every week and we can't do it without listeners just like you uh you can go to patreon.com slash trek fm see all of the support levels we've got, we're going to be revamping that here soon. Uh, but in the end, every little bit helps. So go to patreon.com slash Trek FM. So, Christy, I did mention that this was actually 25 years ago, which is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. But this uh, was also in the same year, 1997, as Titanic, The Lost World, Tomorrow Never Dies, The Fifth Element, and so many other films that came out that year. And so I was just kind of wondering for you, was this a movie that you were excited to see when it came out? Um, And do you even remember the first time that you saw Men in Black?
0: Do I remember? This was another that was on the list of things my dad and I bonded over. I remember, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater, but I definitely remember the first time I saw it um, was with my dad and was during, you know, really the prime years of will smith's budding career you know he Mm -hmm. had been doing fresh prints at this point for quite a while but this was the year that big willie style came out
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: i'm gonna age myself right away and tell you i was 10 years old nice and it was just this incredible thing like nothing i'd ever seen before I think this was also possibly, no, I I was going to say possibly my first encounter with Danny Elfman's music, but that's not true. It would have been Nightmare, nightmare Before Christmas, probably. Um, but yeah, uh, so super memorable, really great um, music to dance to and enjoyed bonding with my dad over this kind of thing. What about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because you mentioned, obviously, Fresh Prince Bel-Air had been out. And of course, you know, the year before this was Independence Day. uh, And so Will Mm -hmm. Smith had hit it huge. And, you know, for me, this was definitely a movie that I was looking forward to, especially in light of the fact that Independence Day, I mean, Will Smith was the breakout star of that movie.
0: And
1: um, it just really set the stage for me to be excited about this. And I mean, again, this is a huge year for film. And and this is really a time in my life where I'm old enough to drive myself to the movies. And my parents have really uh, kind of loosened the reins in the sense of what they're, you know, okay with me seeing. And I'm seeing everything you know mm-hmm. um and of course you know again lost world had was coming out that year uh you had something like uh, tomorrow never dies and then the fifth element just being kind of this out of you know uh just completely out of left field sci-fi type thing that, like something i'd never seen before you know yeah. so everything about this year was exciting for me film wise and then of course this movie Will Smith having such a hit with independence day sets the stage for me to be so excited for this movie to come out. Now I have never really done any kind of like research about this movie, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I was really surprised to read this was that with our director, Barry Sonefeld, who he had directed the Adams family and Adams family values, which I think very much kind of fits with the tone we get for this movie Mm-hmm. Um, but they actually went in and changed a lot of the locations where a lot of this movie was apparently going to take place underground, uh, and places ranging from, they said, uh, Kansas to Washington DC, even Nevada. So you can uh, kind of understand some of those type of places being important, you know, Kansas kind of being a place you might expect aliens to accidentally land, Nevada area 51, mm-hmm. of course, Washington DC. But he decided to change this to New York and New York City because he just felt like that fit better. And that 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 of all cities, New York would be the kind of place where people would be tolerant of people kind of acting oddly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so aliens would fit in there better. So do you feel like that was a good choice for this to 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 make that change and kind of give it that city feel?
0: Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, if you think about it, Ghostbusters kind of did the same thing, that if you're in a city where there's already so much diversity on a regular basis, um, and so much crime, just because the sheer amount of people that live there, um, it really does become a very apathetic society. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, nothing's really unusual anymore. People see weird stuff every day and just keep on trucking. So... Yeah, I think it was so much better that he said it this way and realized that that would be important because think about it being underground. I get like that the bug is a big part of this, but then it feels like it's completely about the bug and not as much about the agents, which I think right. that it should focus on more.
1: I see, I'm right there with you and it's funny that you immediately jumped to Ghostbusters, because that's exactly what I was thinking when I was <laughs> re-watching this. In the sense that this feels so much like Ghostbusters with aliens. Like yeah. the same type of feel. And so I, I really like that you bring that out, because it just makes so much more sense to me Um, in, you know, what we get. So... And I think, you know, this, it, I I understand why you might do this, where you, you might have had this film kind of be based in this kind of very secretive world, and, you know, you kind of put everything underground or whatever, and almost like there's this second society, right, mm-hmm. uh, that we don't know about, that's just beneath us. So that that makes a lot of sense, but I, it it feels more fun. And I think it just fits better the movie in the end to just have this be in New York City. And that for the most part, you know, most of the the aliens living here on Earth choose New York City or a place like that you know, like a a massive metropolitan area where it's much easier to hide in the mass of humanity. So any Mm -hmm. oddities don't really stand out as much because like you said, you're just kind of used to seeing so many people and you might see some strange things along the way as well, that you just become good at kind of disregarding that, you know, your brain as a person who lives in a big city, just kind of gets used to kind of bouncing that over that. So yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. So another thing that I, I mean, to me, rewatching this movie, it's been a while since I've seen this film and I was just surprised um, getting back to it, how the look and the feel so much of this is really classic movie making. Everything is very tactile, uh, everything it feels very real. Uh, you know, we're using puppets, animatronics, but also, I mean, you know, that whole scene at the very beginning is on a set. I mean, they, they don't, they didn't go out and film, you know, in the desert. It, you could tell it's a set. So there's just very much this kind of, uh, old school, classic Hollywood feel to this movie. And I wanted to ask you, especially coming back 25 years later, how does How did that work for you then? And does it still work for you to have that be the design sensibility now? I think it works
0: specifically here because of the really stylized approach they took for for the whole film. You know, I, I think that it does kind of give a vibe of campiness. And so you're more willing to accept things not being super big budget looking as well. Um And, I mean, this is really still kind of um, people getting used to doing more of the uh, 3D animation. So, you can tell that, obviously, like, the bug and some of the aliens don't look as great as maybe they would Mm -hmm. now. Um, But you accept it. And, I I mean, even down to, like, the font of the um, intro text. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very, like... I don't know, it reminds you of insects or something, the way that it's very yep. stick-like, fuzzy-looking letters. And now that's come to be a very specific style where it's like, no, that's the men in black font.
1: <laughs> right, yeah.
0: So, yeah, I, I think that they, it it works here to do that kind of feel when other movies it may not work as well with. Um I think that it it looks really good being on a set for that, but then, you know, Mm -hmm. making it more realistic in other places, you know, like when you're in New York, obviously that's harder to fake.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Um, I I think, I think that this works because of the tone of the movie, kind of like Mm -hmm. you were saying, like the movie is slightly tongue tongue in cheek and, It embraces the wackiness of the idea of that there are aliens that live among us and we don't know it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that one of the things that really helps is, you know, unless you were going to spend an enormous amount of money. Uh, we we are at a point where, you know, CGI is not quite there yet. I mean, the budget of this movie is $90 million, um, which at the time is still quite a big uh, budget, of course. But mm-hmm. just think about it. This is 1997. So, you know, this is the era of the special editions where... Um, you know, it, it's either you're spending a ton of money, like the Lost World is going to, or you know, you do it a little bit more old school. And in and in a lot of ways, I think that that's this really works because they go the old school route because you can still watch this movie, and of course, it's a puppet. Of course, it's animatronic. You know, but it all feels so real, and, and it has a sense of being to it for so much of this movie. I, I mean, I think, you know, the, the only standout really becomes at the very end where you do have a fully CGI character, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that we haven't had as much in this film. Uh, but again, you know, there wasn't any way to do that. And, uh, you know, with in, a puppet. Any other way. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it, it helps this movie stand the test of time to have that reality to it. And Mm -hmm. so I'm very thankful that that's the case. And again, I think it just, the look and the feel of the movie is so tied into the overall just experience that the movie's bringing you through the 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 world that they create and the um the emotions they're kind of trying to bring out of you everything about this works uh you know with the way you they deal with stuff which is to have everything be very tactile like you can touch it you can feel it you you know like you can feel the slime. Could ta- yeah, you can taste it, <laughs> you know, in some of those places mm-hmm. where you're like they're being slimed and it's just just nasty, disgusting, you know. So I I really think this is something that is a benefit to this film uh as still holding weight in water in this in this day and age. And I think that's something that's really special because you know, there are other movies that just don't, right? And um, like again, you mentioned Ghostbusters, and I think this kind of this movie specifically—I'm not mentioning any of the other films here in the series—but this one has that type of feel to it, right? Uh, and I, I think that's one of the things that helped make it special. And mm-hmm. so, um, interestingly, I didn't know this, but Clint Eastwood was approached to do the role of tommy lee jones's k and so (laughs) uh, how do uh, what do you think do you think that would have worked or are you glad that it was tommy lee jones i'm
0: glad it was tommy lee jones because dude i love clint eastwood but i think that he is never going to be the buddy cop kind of guy (laughs) He's Dirty Harry. He's, you know, the grumpy old man. But it, it's he's not as much of the going-to-lean-into-the-humor-of-things right. kind of actor. I think it would have ended up being too serious and not as much of a fun, campy film.
1: Mm-hmm. You feel the same? I, it's such an interesting thing because... I don't know if Clint Eastwood couldn't do it, mm-hmm. but I think... That Tommy Lee Jones is able to do what Clint Eastwood does in the sense of being very gruff, no-nonsense, seemingly humor- humorless, even though he's not. Mm-hmm. And yet, he's able to then have those kind of like hidden emotional moments that, that come out every once in a while here with Kay in a way that I, I don't know if Eastwood at the time would have been as, I don't know if it would have been as easy for him to pull those off. I I think Clint Mm -hmm. Eastwood, as he's gotten older, has played a a lot more emotional roles. I think of his cry macho film that he did or um, even, um, Grand Torino, or those kind of things where there's a lot more emotion involved, um, but I don't know if if he would have quite been able to pull that off and you know I think this is interesting too. you know Tommy Lee Jones accepts this role because Steven Spielberg promises that the script is going to get better for this and and I'm just glad he did because in many ways this this movie just fits his persona the persona he has for films, which is being that super kind of like sarcastic, no nonsense uh, kind of character uh, and who does care and, you know, he does, but he pretends like he doesn't. Right. Well, and, and two, I'll
0: say what I'm specifically thinking of is not as, as much of a Clint Eastwood thing is the scene where they flip upside down in the car and, K is playing Elvis music. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood would not be hanging upside down bopping to Elvis. Yeah, I do think that would. It just wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> it would be a little weird. Um it, but yeah, I think that he he does make that work as far as being able to bring a little bit more fun to it, but then also really surprise you with some very emotional moments. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you definitely don't expect with his role in this movie initially that he's going to have the scene where he's checking in on his wife. Mm -hmm. You know, and that moment where he's literally saying nothing. He's just looking at her picture, watching her in, well, looking at her on Mm -hmm. video. um, And you can see everything you
1: need to see in the expression on his face. So, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I think he's fantastic in the movie. And and I think the thing about it is, is that his back and forth with Will Smith is what makes this work as well. And I had Mm -hmm. no idea uh, that the person they really wanted for this movie before Will Smith was Chris O'Donnell uh, because of his portrayal of Dick Grayson in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So I'm not quite sure what they were smoking. Uh but I feel like that would have been a terrible choice. No. Yeah, uh,
0: why? I mean, I also love Chris O'Donnell. I think he was great, at, you know, especially um Three Musketeers was one of my favorite movies of all time. Um but I think that here you need the sass and also some of the seriousness that will smith can bring to this and i mean now i think we could look back and say maybe will smith ends up leaning too much into um sometimes being a, a recurring kind of character he has his will smith isms that we see in independence day and mm-hmm. in this movie and then others um but at this time this was still only the second big film he had done so people really embraced that style and you know his jokes of like it's raining black people in new york you know right <laughs> um or like the back and forth of uh, him and kay making up names for each other every time they show mm-hmm. up at a scene um i just think with chris o'donnell it would not have worked the same way at all and wouldn't have felt as um strong of a bond between the two characters
1: yeah i um no i mean no offense to chris o'donnell uh or even david schwimmer who turned down this role uh (laughs) but i i just think that will smith is the better choice here and and mainly because i think the you know we set this movie in new york and he just has this swagger that somebody that is a good new york cop You, you know we kind of Gravitate towards. We just believe that that he is good at his job, and he's he's somebody that uh, could pull this off. And and I I think yeah, there's nobody else who is going to pull off the type of sarcasm in this movie that he's just so good at. Yeah, uh, I also think you're absolutely right. You know what he also brings to the role, and I think he does really well in the movie. Is he does have this feeling for the people uh that because of maybe because he's newer at the job or just into this you know that that k has kind of lost where he has that care for the people around him that this is impacting you know uh and and mm-hmm. part of that like i think he just portrays you know that uh well i uh, you know um and and his like Worrying about you know flashy thinking people uh, too many times, and if it's going to give them mm-hmm. brain cancer, and are are they at least being given good memories? You know, and and so I just think all of this is is something that Will Smith pulls off with ease because of who he is as an actor and, and what he was able to do, and the, and this movie is you know obviously with this and you know Independence Day before it, this is just right within his wheelhouse, and. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Chris O'Donnell, it, obviously he could have done this. I just don't think he had what it takes to make this thing, the success that it was, the way that Will Smith is able to do. Because I think of his chemistry with Tommy Lee Jones. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, and then to, like, think about the other things we've seen Chris O'Donnell in, I think he also would have come across too much, like, way too green as a a cop to be suited to the kind of cop they were looking for in this character. You know what I mean? Like, they wanted somebody that was a rookie, yeah, but yep. not going to look like mm-hmm. Opie standing out there like, what do I do now? Right. <laughs>
1: Well, and I think it actually just helps that the year before this, Will Smith is playing a fighter pilot in Independence Day. So we Mm -hmm. actually, exactly what you're saying is, is that he's already kind of had this type of role where he has this weight on his shoulders of, of important things that he's doing and you accept that he could be this type of character. Uh, and right. so, yeah, I, I hundred percent agree with you. I, I just think, you know, I can't imagine this movie in all honesty with anybody else, even Chris O'Donnell, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what did you think of, uh, Linda Florentino who plays, uh, Dr. Weaver, uh, you know, she's the medical examiner. And then of course she becomes the partner of Jay at the end of the film, did she get enough to do? Would you have liked to her to have been able to do more? I, ha, especially looking back now at the movie after 25 years, ha, how did you feel? I think she's
0: great. And, and she's an actress that I also know from Dogma, which came out two years later mm-hmm. from this. Yeah. Um, she, I think, is really interesting because you can tell from the get-go, she pops into the interrogation room when he's first seen something really weird alien wise and is saying i believe you let's chat later and he's like wait what who are you where are you going (laughs) you know um and so right off the bat they give her something interesting to do and she's not just the medical examiner or not just the love interest or something like that you know she's part of the crew even though she gets Mm -hmm. um flashy thingy multiple times they keep bringing her back and decide, you know what, maybe she would be helpful with all of yeah. this, so yeah i th- I think she does a really great job with what she's given and gets to be a really interesting character for k and J to bounce off of um mm-hmm. and then the entire scene with um her and J and the bug. <laughs> is hilarious i don't know i just i i really like her in this
1: yeah i thought i mean i'm with you i I thought she was really good and and i thought it was one of those things where and it's something we haven't mentioned yet but this movie is 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 very tight in the sense that uh, you know there is nothing about it that is extraneous there it doesn't Mm -hmm. run too long it's actually a rather um short film it's only an hour and 38 minutes So there's not a lot of time uh, for, you know, scenes with characters that you're not going to uh, invest in. and I think what they do with her is they invest just enough time for her to be there, and then um, you kind of accept with everything you're shown with her that she's going to be the person that's going to end up, you know, it makes sense that she's going to be agent L. She's going to replace, you know, K and she's going to be there with J at the end. And the chemistry that her and Will Smith have, I think was great as well. So I think it, it all just really works. And I, I think one of the things that I always found was disappointing is, is that, you know, and everybody expected that she would be there for men in black too. And then she was not. So, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know the story of what happened there, and, but it was disappointing to me that that she did not get to follow that up because, of course, that movie you know brings Kay back, and you know so, um, and I think this is uh, yeah, this is one of those movies where they specifically with her as the character and everything, this is a movie that just put everything on the line and it wasn't about, okay, we're going to make a, you know, I think a, a huge franchise out of this. It's just like it just became a movie where they put everything out there and, uh, you know, and then it, it became stands a stands alone. Exactly. It didn't yeah. need more to it. And, yeah. and then, of course, they kind of...
0: Um, I did want to add one other thing with her that I was impressed about is now also, if you're looking back... um. It's right out the gate as well, showing you that when they say men in black, that that doesn't mean solely male agents, that that just means, you know, sort of another way of saying people in black, that they can be men, women, whatever, um, and that the agency is just called men in black because that's a, a simpler way to put it.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, Greg, agree with you. Um, one of the, the the other things that I think was really genius in the casting because it's it it works so perfectly was Rip Torn as Zed. Yeah, because he has the perfect voice for this. He has the perfect demeanor, Um and I just thought he was great because he just rolls with everything in a way that feels perfect and again he doesn't have tons of screen time or anything but he's just he already kind of has a gravitas to him so that when he is on screen you buy everything that he's doing
0: exactly he's the guy that you feel like is always in the office running things he's a great ceo kind of um persona in the room and i love especially like scenes where Jay sets off the orb that's bouncing all over the place. And Mm -hmm. all Rip Torn has to do is bend his head slightly. (laughs) You know, it's like that thing's happened a million times before he's used Mm -hmm. to it. Just dodge it. Move on.
1: Yes. Yes. No, I I think you're absolutely right. Uh, That whole scene was, was phenomenal. I I actually, I I remembered it being there, but I didn't remember it kind of being as funny and, and how you're, when he just kind of like "Eh, said four or a but casually it was great (laughs) um i'm also really glad that um you know i totally forgot in all honesty that vincent d'onofrio plays the bug me too Uh, because he uh, you know i'm so used to seeing him now and he's just a big guy like he you know when he Mm -hmm. he's in uh Daredevil uh, playing Kingpin or, you know, he was in the yeah. Jurassic world movie. You know, he's a big tall guy and and I just kind of forget, you know, he was once so much younger like we all were. And mm-hmm. he is so funny with his movements. The, the voice that he gives this character, just the complete and utter uncomfortableness you have watching him, Move his appendages in ways that just feel like Elaine dancing from Seinfeld. It just (laughs) that's the uncomfortableness that he gives every single movement of the bug, which is phenomenal.
0: You are so on point with that. I'm thinking immediately of the scene where he's trying to get out of the pest control truck and he's like so jerky. And he's like trying to force his head to turn. And even just the makeup that they did on him. I mean, he looks like a rotting corpse. <laughs> it's still disturbing how gross he looks for most of this movie. Um, and then I love that they even throw the joke in of Jay sees the photograph of him and he goes, he was this ugly before he became the bug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, Egger. yeah yeah exactly but yeah oh oh man man. that man can act and he really got the personality the movements and everything down with this and even the voice i mean you know the the change from speaking with a normal cadence and things to the i need sugar
1: (laughs) yes yes i mean he 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 really is kind of almost an unsung hero to this movie uh and i i mean i I know there are other people who are up for the role, but I just can't imagine somebody doing it better uh and mm-hmm. and it it really does add a lot to the film just the way that he's able to pull it off and so i I was struck by watching the movie again, and it just has this small little theme, you know, and obviously they play it for laughs the whole time about. How the universe is bigger than we know, right? Mm-hmm. That that it's bigger and weirder than we could possibly imagine. And, you know, we as human beings just kind of like to believe even then, you know, it, we didn't have cell phones like we do now, but that we could just fit everything into the world in our pocket. We understand everything uh, and we kind of have lost, I think, a lot of the wonder of our world, you know, and I think this movie is kind of about, in many ways, that things are are more enchanted than we would like to think. You know, we've kind of mm-hmm. disenchanted our world in the sense of, like, everything is explainable, you know, there's nothing beyond explanation, and this movie is like, no, there's... There is enchantment all over the place and it's mm-hmm. crazier and wackier maybe than we even know. And and I just kind of like that because um I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so fun is that its ability to I mean I you know, I don't think there are necessarily aliens living in New York, but yeah, that the the world is, is and the universe itself is just wackier than we thought possible.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I'm glad that you brought it up. I think immediately of that line that Kay says where, you know, he says, 500 years ago, we knew the world was flat. And, you know, just think what we could know tomorrow that we don't know. You know, he's saying yep. yeah. we we are constantly learning that what we thought yesterday was wrong and getting new information and that the wonder out there of the things to discover Is still a really cool thing and I love that more than once in this movie they have one of the agents say we never just stop and look at the stars. And that's something that's always Mm -hmm. really um, stuck with me as well being someone who loves um, Dante's Divine Comedy. It says, you know, we came out once more to see the stars and that's always a source of realizing there's a higher power than yourself And there's more out there to learn. That there's always more to learn. We can never know everything. Um, And so I like that they really focus on that with this movie. And even to the point of talking about the galaxy that these aliens are trying to get back. I love when they have Doug the Pug say, "Um, just because something's important doesn't mean it's not very, very small.
1: Yeah. No, I I think you're 100% right on that. And I I love how you... You brought it around to that idea of the the galaxy, and mm-hmm. yes, it is something that is small. It is something that um you know we 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 wouldn't expect, right because our human mind immediately goes one direction,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: yet what we see here in this movie is that we need to open our minds. To the possibilities of things that we can't expect or that we can't explain or immediately mm-hmm. put into a box, you know, and so I, I think that that's fun. And I mean, obviously, of course, you know, they play with that about, you know, all oh, Elvis isn't really dead. He, you know, he just went home. Um, the idea that, you know, the teacher that you had that you couldn't stand in like fifth grade or whatever was a an alien from outer space, actually. And and so But I really do think that there is something to that that is more – that sticks out with me even more now than it did then because, yeah, we just kind of live in this world where everybody thinks they can explain everything and and that there's nothing bigger than ourselves, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, of course, this movie goes to that at the very end that, yeah, there's just literally aliens playing marbles with our galaxy and it's just another galaxy that's thrown into a marble bag, you know, with mm-hmm. a bunch of other guys, ga- you know. So um, and I mean, to me, it just kind of even fits with, you know, we we've seen the all seen those new pictures with um, the telescope and that there's that one picture that's just full of galaxies. And that's just like, right. You know, they, they said if you put a piece of sand an arm's length away from you, that's how much of the sky you're looking at. That's, Which is like, yeah, what? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, the universe is bigger, people. Um, yep. So, one of the things, too, that I was reading is that there was a whole new ending for this movie. Um, and they changed the ending because it was an existential debate between Agent J and the bug. And they just felt like it was unexciting. So they reshot the whole thing with, you know, doing the CGI, a bug and, you know, having uh, Kay jump into it and and Jay having this huge fight. And I, I don't know. Like I was, I was thinking as like, it seems like they probably made the right choice here because I don't. I don't know how you pull off an existential debate as the end of your film with this bug alien thing.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad they did change that, that it would have been really lackluster and you need something to close it with a bang, you know, and that just would have been a letdown. And also they kind of make the bug out the entire time to be dumb I mean, you know, that it's a bug. It's got very base instincts and purpose in life and that's to procreate and to um, you know, find new places to live. Um so having an existential debate with a bug would not make any sense because bugs don't think that way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I like the way you put that. And I think that's a really... It just doesn't make sense with the movie. Yeah.
0: Um, But God, the fact that it cost them an extra four and a half million dollars. I think everyone else was like, do we really need to do this?"
1: Mm this? This is a lot of money. Well, I think it in many ways it does make sense because the CGI that they do is, you know for the time is incredible. I mean, it, yeah. they are putting a ton of work into that. And um, that's that's a lot because you would have been then reshooting things and then you would have had to insert the bug. And, um, you know, that's, I think, a big the biggest question really becomes, okay, so they had to do this with the CGI at the time. And so, you know, that does kind of stand out I think, from the rest of the film, which has been so much more uh, reality-based with the puppets and everything. So do you feel like, you know, now that that still works then for them choosing this as the ending? You know, it works in the sense of you you thought it made more sense for the story, but does it it still work even though the effects aren't the same as we would have now?
0: Yeah, I I think because they do build it up this whole time that it's possibly a giant cockroach um i think that that was the right way to go then with the look of seeing the actual bug outside of the suit um and i thought that it was hilarious that they change it to jay is squishing his family (laughs) Mm mm-hmm um, and that you know, it ties back in together with the other scenes where they had the bug getting upset about people mm-hmm. smacking flies or something, you know. So I, I do think it works a lot better from that standpoint as well. And I think that they ended up with something that just works, whereas otherwise it, it you would have been sitting there going, How does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think you would have just come to Wayne and been like, That that's it? That, mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense. And so, no, I 100% agree with you. I think, you know, yeah, the, the CGI isn't perfect, uh, of course, uh, but I think the fact that it's a a giant cockroach makes for it making more sense, right? You know? um yeah. And I I think the whole ending is, is a much better choice. I think you do kind of want... The characters to be able to have this moment but I, I think too I think it actually just helps with the choice that Kay makes which is to you know the same thing that his partner made at the beginning of the film which is like I just you know I, I've i done enough I'm ready to you know go back and, and live the life that I, I gave up You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that that these guys, that these people do, right? They, they literally give up their life for anybody to know them, you know, and the only way that you'd really be able to have a relationship with anybody would for it to be inside the agency. And Mm -hmm. so, and, and especially, you know, if you wanted to have some kind of romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. can't do that really with, um, somebody outside the agency. So, yeah, I I think all of that even works on that level too to make all of that fit very well. And so, yeah, I, I I'm glad they went with this ending. Um Well, obviously we we already mentioned the fact that the music here is Danny Elfman doing the score. And then of course, I, you mentioned it. I mean, Big Willie style came out. This was a that was a huge album with Will Smith, and of course with Will Smith doing the song here. It's something that'll get repeated with Wild Wild West. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the less said about that movie, the better. Uh, but hey. you know, I think uh, I, I'm want, I'm interested. How do you feel like the score from Elfman and you know the 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 final song hold up these days? So. I
0: wanted to add one thing, you know, when I mentioned earlier, I thought that maybe this was my first encounter with Elfman. It wasn't because apparently nightmare before Christmas came out in 93. So um, that was my first foray into Elfman music, but um, his style fits so well with this kind of movie. And he, he does do things primarily that are more like dark and creepy, Um, very stylized and I mean you would almost think that this was also a Tim Burton movie right Um, and I think that then having Sonnenfeld as the director who has done similar kinds of movies like Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values um, they're a good pairing Um, and I think that he just gets across also the campiness and can have some really pretty themes in the score. Um, But overall is really giving off a specific vibe to the whole movie that just works. And I think you can't separate this movie from Danny Elfman because then mm-hmm. it just doesn't work as well. Um, And then, you know, uh, the Will Smith song is great. Obviously, it's a... um remake of uh forget me not um but it's fun it's you know it it fits that whole vibe of his first album as well and this is like you know you jump up and start dancing and remember being young again to me even though it's not like the greatest music i've ever
1: heard in my life it's fun yeah no i i think what you said In terms of Elfman was perfect in the sense that, you know, this movie does kind of feel very in line with something that Tim Burton would have done. And Mm -hmm. I think the music being a little bit off kilter and a little bit strange is something that fits perfectly for this movie because everything is a little bit topsy-turvy. And that's exactly what Elfman gives us with the score here. And yeah, you know, I think the MIB song at the end with Will Smith. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It's so much a part of our culture now. And it was such a big deal then. You know, I I, I still really enjoy it. You know, it's on a playlist of mine and I'll, I'll still hear it every once in a while. And it's it's a fun song to bop along to. And so 100%, I think that the music choices that they make in the movie work. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... Again, the music by Elfman sets the stage at the very beginning of the movie. That kind of like I don't I don't even know necessarily how to describe it, but I think you said that it just it feels a little bit off. Bum, 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 bum. Like it just it yeah it, it it has this driving nature to it, and and everything about it feels. Almost like larger than life and slightly cartoonish, which is exactly what this movie is. And mm-hmm. so, again, I think the mo- the music fits perfectly with it. Um, so, uh, Chrissy, 25 years later, uh, what would you rate, then, Men in Black? So, uh, I...
0: <sighs> I want to try and not be biased but I think that it's always going to be one of my favorites and something that I just end up referring to a lot I don't know about you Matt but like something I do sometimes is I feel like there's movie quotes or scenes that are stuck in my head that then apply to real life situations and I'm joking about them still so I have to to rate it pretty high I give it a four out of five um shaken Frank the Pugs Nice. Nice. Because he's just so cute and he's very smart, and then he needs to go t- for a walk before his flight.
1: You know, I. It's interesting because I looked back at the movie as I had rated it on Letterboxd before this, and it was at three and a half. And, you know, just rewatching it, I was just struck by how this movie does exactly what it wants to do. And there's nothing really extraneous. Again, it's a very tight hour, 38 minutes. And you get in, you get out, you have a good time. And I love that. And I think the movie still just holds up after all this time, which is pretty impressive. So I'm going to go with four out of five as well for this, uh, yes. four out of five swish cockroaches because all cockroaches <laughs> should be squished. And <laughs> this is, this is just a fun ride, even 25 years later. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very glad that we went back and did this one and that it was having its anniversary, which, you know, next week we're going to be at another anniversary as a big movie. Um, uh, uh, That came out in the 80s is also having one, and we have not talked about that yet, but stay tuned. Uh, You'll have to wait till next week. But Christy, before we get out of here, what would you like to recommend to everybody this week? So I was inspired
0: as we were looking back at movies of the 90s to recommend one that maybe um, some people have missed, and you should definitely go back and check out if you have missed that, and it's Contact which also came out in 1997 um, and stars Jodie Foster um, and interestingly enough, Matthew McConaughey. Um, But it's also kind of along those lines of there's more out there than you know, and trying to make contact with whatever that is. Um, And it's also a a really cool movie for encouraging people to um, look back at radio As Mm -hmm. a really valid means of communication and that maybe there's radio waves can reach things that we wouldn't be able to with any other form of communication. So, yeah, I highly recommend checking out the movie Mm. Contact if you have not seen that.
1: That's great. Uh, Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time. But, yeah, I remember that being on the list of movies from from 97 when I was looking at what came out. So there I Mm -hmm. mean, that year was just crazy. Uh, with mm-hmm. films but I'm going to recommend so um, obviously they are working hard on Dune part two and I have just dive right back into the Dune series um, and I'm reading the Duke of Caledon uh, which is Brian Herbert and uh, Kevin J. Anderson they have written a bunch of uh, prequel and then, of course, sequel books, uh, to the series. And I like their work quite a bit. And so I hope that, uh, people will check out uh, their stuff. Um, gives a lot of great context, I believe, to Herbert's original series. And, which is also so good. Um, in fact, uh, they're gonna be coming out, uh, with, uh, special editions of Dune Messiah as well as, Children of Dune next year in nice hardcover editions. So so I actually already have those pre-ordered. So yeah, you know, and if you've never read the Dune series, I'm just going to recommend just diving into that anyway. It's phenomenal. It's so worth it. So please check that out. But Christy, uh, if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you?
0: You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bespin Bell. And of course, then sometimes too in the Babel Conference. And, um, I also have a show that is finished, but, um, we may be having some, you know, Instagram lives or something to revisit geeky topics together. But Sabers and Spells, um, is on the Skywalking Through Neverland network. And, um, I hope that you'll check that out as well on Instagram and, of course, in your podcatcher of choice at Sabers and Spells.
1: And you could find me all over the place on social media under Matt MattRushing02. So Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, I'm all, all of those places under that same name. Of course, here in the 602 Club feed, got Snyder Cuts as well as Assembling Avengers, and Assembling Avengers is actually going to be coming back next month. So you can check that out as John and I are going to be starting on Phase four, finally, uh, especially now that phase four has an end coming up here in November with the next Black Panther film. Uh, you can also find me uh, here on the network doing literary tracks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Orb 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard, and Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got a completed show that I did with Drea Kaufman called Owl Posts. And we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then John Mills and I also do a show over there called Aggressive Negotiations, which is all about Star Wars. So we hope that you will check that out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?